Welcome to the Music 3.0 podcast from Plus Music. Today we're sitting down with American University professor and digital music expert, Aram Sinright. Aram has been one of the nation's go-to insight leaders on digital music since the 90s, and is the author of several books on the topic, including The Piracy Crusade, available everywhere books are sold. We talk with Aram about how music is often the playground for testing out technical innovation, in this case, the burgeoning world of AI. We discuss the question of intellectual property and who owns the music AI creates. We also discuss Web 3.0, when will it truly arrive? What promise does it hold? And how it will interface with gaming. So stay tuned and here's more from Aram now. All right, welcome to the uh, Music 3.0 podcast. We're happy to sit down with Aram Sinright here. Aram, welcome to the show. And uh, one thing we like to do when we get started here is for our listeners, we'd like you to give a little intro of yourself in your own words, your area of expertise, just so everyone can get to know you here on a little uh, Cliff Notes version of your career and history and expertise here. Yeah, sure. I'm a professor at American University in Washington, D.C. I've been working on digital music since the 1990s when I used to be a, an analyst at Jupiter Research back in New York City, and I used to run the show Plugin. Uh, I've written a bunch of books about digital music, my book Mashed Up, uh, my book The Piracy Crusade. I'm also a working musician. Uh, I play the bass, I write songs. Uh, you know, you can find me out there. Um, basically, I'm like a moth to music's flame, and uh, I think technology is really interesting and scary and wonderful. <laughs> All right. There you go. I love that. And right, let's jump off. I got a question for you right away. Yeah. So I have not read your book, um, The Piracy Crusade. Is that how that's the title? Yeah, that was my second book. And that sounds like an excellent book that I need to read. Um, but so if I if it's if the title says what it is, do you think, and now I'm gonna get you some into some thought leadership, do you think we're in a Napster 2.0 moment? I think we've been in a Napster 2.0 moment since Napster 1.0 was done. Um, I mean, so there's two ways to look at it. Define right? Napster 2.0 then for us. Napster 2.0 means that new techno-social ideas disrupt the way that music gets made and monetized on an ongoing basis faster than the industry can adapt. Mm, got it. Uh, and I think, you know, like I said, there's kind of two ways that you can look at it. One is that, you know, because of Moore's law, because, you know, the, the pace of technological change doubles every 18 months, um, it's uh, it's very difficult for established industries with, like, you know, legal departments and, and uh, you know, accounting practices and giant institutions with shareholders to kind of pivot and totally change direction every time a new tool emerges that changes the way that people want to make and hear music. But the other way to see it, and I think this is actually the more interesting way of looking at it, is that for human beings, music is kind of the domain where we always take on new and challenging ideas and where we grapple with the implications of those ideas before they kind of filter out into the general society at large. So I think that you know the reason, for instance, we're in this AI moment in music is because we're about to be in this AI moment in society. And it's kind of a playground where we can play with ideas in a kind of lower stakes environment than, say, reorganizing our governments or throwing out our old religions and creating new ones or, or whatever kind of tectonic changes you want to think about down the, 
down the road. And so let's say, let, so, all right, so there's a couple of things there. One, yeah, uh, the concept of Moore's Law, I think initially that was chip chip production, right? Chip chip scaling. And then yeah, I'm, I'm being more synonymous with, and then, yeah, but, but you're not wrong. A lot of people use it for just like the development. Uh, it's just the theory sort of expanded out of that. And then where I was going with that was not to, you know, to go that direction. It was like, well, with AI, I think that Moore's Law is going to, if you use it in the software development sense, it's going to, my sense is that it's going to go a lot faster, right? Like what's happens in, in AI and in a month was like a whole year of, of software growth and development in the past, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, we're, we're all grown men. Uh, we've been around the block a couple of times. And, and you know that technological development doesn't kind of follow the straight line. It kind of happens in spurts, right? Because totally. all this stuff is happening in the skunk works that people like us don't have access to. And then it gets dumped on the general public and everybody goes, holy crap, this is like a whole new paradigm. And then very quickly, we kind of reabsorb it and we learn how to think about it and we integrate it into our aesthetics. And then, you know, people go back to the skunk works and come up with the next thing. And then they dump that on us. So it's this this kind of stepwise progression, I think, where you know we've we've almost gotten acculturated to having this like new and totally mind blowing tools dropped on us every couple of years, and having to kind of rethink the way that society operates. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong, and it, you know, like I think we got used to phones coming out once a year, cars getting formal. Like if you notice, like. BMWs or whatever, the, the life cycle of that design will take like seven years or something. And then then they do a new, and so they just sort of iterate, make a new bumper. Like they, they do these like small step function growth things. And and it's and you're like, oh yeah, well, I, I want the new one. It's like kind of like the same one, same car, just a little different. But I think let's get into the music piece. It's, you know, there's there's like two camps right now. Maybe let's just say there is, but probably more camps than that. But you've got generative AI, and then you've got all the human-created music out there. And like, I, I think it's a it's such a wide open conversation that what is generative AI? It's you know, arguably it's it's a model built off of somebody else's music compositions, and and then it's letting the uh, a computer, you know, some form of intelligence sort of reorganize ideas, which is very similar to what our brains do, you know. Um, but it's a, the difference is that it's a service, right? It's kind of like a scalable service. So if you were to say, oh, make me a new Beatles song, um, unless you made the proprietary AI and you trained the model and you owned the music to be able to do that, oh, you're, you're going. Then, to you've got, then you've got you've got like these legal things. Hence the music 3.0 maybe at this point, right? Um, and sure, jump in there anytime. But yeah, like there's there's sprinkle some some ideas. <laughs> it's not going. There's, there's yeah, sure, okay. So so. Um... I think it's easy for us to conflate a bunch of different things all at once, right? One is the uh, kind of distinction between artificial and organic music, which I think is, you know, 
not to put too fine a point on it, but kind of a bullshit distinction, and we can talk about why that is. Um, one is the the kind of labor and property issues. Um, you know, like, sure, it seems like magic that AI can spit out a new Beatles song, but there's a lot of human labor that goes into that process, beginning with the Beatles themselves, up through the computer scientists who create the machine learning model uh, and the musicologists who create the uh, database that feeds the ML model, and then the actual end user who's like tweaking the ML model to produce the Beatles song, right? That's all human labor. And some of that is visible and some of it is invisible. Some of it is compensated and some of it is not compensated. And there's a whole megilla of issues around that. Um, and then the third issue that you kind of pointed at is the kind of legal issue and the fact that we have this copyright system that was created, you know, um, at the dawn of the 19th century to serve big publishing houses and somehow now is supposedly supposed to help Spotify figure out whether Universal Music Group can take down a fake Drake song. Um, you know, we've gotten pretty far from the origins of that law and it's gotten stretched some would argue, myself included, to breaking point and needs to be kind of rethought. So we could go down any of those rabbit holes because they all go really, really deep. I'm most interested in the first of those three, which is this notion of like, what does it mean for music to be synthetic versus organic, you know? Um, and why do we impose that dichotomy on ourselves, right? So you know, we already have this really interesting, you know, if you think about it, like there are these two totally different fields of music. One of them is like major label music and music that you hear in like movie soundtracks and in toothpaste commercials. And it's basically music that whether you, I'm not judging it. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad or whether I like it or I don't. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But that's all music whose function is to make money, right? It's music whose sonic shape it's commercial. Into, it's commercial. It fits into a certain industrial context and it lubricates the flow of money from one place to another place. And then there's all the other music that people make. And that's everything from like singing gospel in church to playing covers in like a dive bar to, you know, like singing in the shower and uh, to teaching children the alphabet, right? And all of that music um, comes from a, a set of incentives that maybe have a monetary component, but that aren't conceived of in order to fit into a um, uh, a commercial category. And there's a dialectic between those two things. So the way that we interpret the organic music is shaped by our commercial music sphere. And the kind of stuff that flies in a commercial sphere is always having to be revamped because of the organic forces that surround it. That dynamic I am so utterly fascinated with, have been my entire life, probably always will be. Uh, and I think AI it really forces us to confront some of our false assumptions at the heart of that in a way that we haven't had to for a while. Okay, let's dig in some more. Let's dig in some more there. So one, um, okay, I want to make some distinctions between organic and, would you call it synthetic? Mm -hmm. Sure. So what is synthetic music? Let's use the Beatles as an example, right? To create the Beatles, which is, they made a body of music and arguably they've influenced a generation and several generations of musicians since they existed. And they were influenced by generations of musicians before. But you kind of have to like, okay, this band had to go to Hamburg, Germany 
and play three times a day, take drugs, do, you know, they get didn't out. They have there. to take drugs, but they did. <laughs> but like, that was their experience. Let's just say like, that was the hard reality of what they did to get to the place and to get how good they were and to have their 10,000 hours or whatever you want to buy into from a theory perspective. But that was hard work needed to get there to be able to create that body of, of work. Um, and then the, you know, uh, all their producers and everything else that, that, that came around them. So that would be like the organic path of making music, right? It's you- an organic path of making music, right? Which is like, what is the, to your point, like, what is the, that's the commercial one that the human that beings took, right? Yes. So, I mean, like the most organic version of music would be instrument. And then you play the instrument or you just sing and get, uh, that's probably the, the most human version of making a sound that has some kind of pleasantry to it. Right. Or maybe not, but I think so. Uh, yeah. So, Okay, let's go all the way to the, let's the, on the other end of that spectrum. We've got Synthetic. a computer. We've got a computer that has the ability to um, make sound waves come out of speakers. Right? There was no speakers; those sound waves would never hit our ears and register in our brain. So it would be stuck in this digital space as a you know sound that makes no sound it's all in there until it comes out into the organic world right so it's like the classic zen cohen yeah so i think that when we have so what what are your thoughts on the digital side and the argument of like oh that's not real music or that's that um that you need to who are you going to pay for this model because clearly that computer didn't invent music well, Great and question. there's a third tier, too. Yeah. You give me one of those guitars behind me, I can give you a synthetic Beatles song made organically. But I know the Beatles repertoire and catalog very well. I could but pro- you're not claiming to own the Beatles song, right? Or you're no, not... I would be making Beatles... And then I know where you're going with that, which is... I know we're jumping around here. Uh, but, like, where you're going with that is... I've listened to all the Beatles music and then I pick up a guitar and does the Beatles own my song? My and that's the biggest is influenced by the music I've listened to the same way a computer's listened to it. Yeah. So there's a bunch of different questions baked into that and let we can, we can kind of tease the, the threads yeah. apart. Mm-hmm. Right. So the first thing, I think one of the things that, that, gets us very confused when we talk about music is that in part because we live in this era of musical commodities of recorded sound um we tend to think of music as a noun as an object that you know well i made a copy of this object and you own that object and you know in that in that way it's like analogous to a to a shirt or to a water bottle it's you know it's a, it's a physical commodity that can be manufactured and bought and sold and owned and copied and and deconstructed but there's a whole sociological approach to thinking about music that thinks of it as a verb, right? That music isn't something you make, it's something you, you do. In fact, there's this term musicking that you guys have probably come across in your own work that um, has a lot of uh, um, kind of credence to it right now. And I think to think about AI in terms of musicking, 
rather than the musical commodity and, and object helps clarify the issue a lot. So who's using AI to do what with music becomes the real question, right? Um, the problem is, and this is kind of where you were going to at the end of uh, what you were just saying, is that music as a commodity was a necessary fiction in order to justify our economic system and our legal system that provide incentives for people to share their music in the marketplace, right? And that all dates back, like I was saying, to the fact that the first musical commodity was these stacks of paper with printed ink on them um, that, uh, you know, the big publishing houses of the 19th century made a business of stockpiling. And so, you know, copyright as a, as a legal system is based on this notion of a physical object, whereas most of what we do with music has nothing to do with a physical object and has everything to do with using sound to organize our relationships with other human beings. And, and that tension makes it very difficult to think about AI in a productive, meaningful way. So um, should the Beatles own, like, you know, if, if Brian starts, you know, riffing around on the guitar and maybe you're, you're playing like a, you know, a D7 chord and you, you go down a little bass line to a C, to a B, to a B flat. Well, you know, there's something dear prudential about that, but that's not enough. You know, thank God the courts just agreed, uh, you know, that... Um, you know, uh, uh, what's-his-face didn't steal, let's get it on, yeah. uh, Ed Sheeran, yeah. right? Um, but, like, that's not really enough. Like, John Lennon should not own, uh, the or his estate should not own the rights to that little riff. And you could write a million great songs on it, and a million people have written a million great songs on it. You know, like, I think about, like, Rotary Connections Left Fleur, right? You know, won't somebody take me to the fair? Like, that's a great fucking song that uses the same riff and, you know, there's nobody should be able to stop Brian from being able to use exactly that riff. Um, now, you feed Dear Prudence into a machine learning data set and, you know, uh, the AI comes up with that riff. Does that make it theft? Does that make it a Beatles song? Well, you know, it, 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 the, the answer is in the interpretive valence of it. It's like, who's listening to it? Under what circumstances and for what purposes? Are you replacing a Beatles song in like a TV commercial with something that sounds so similar everybody would mistake it for the Beatles? Well, in that case, because it's substitutional and because its function is commercial, yeah, it's probably verges on theft, yeah. right? But are you using it in order to kind of like come up with your own riff on this age-old, um, you know, progression? Well, no, there's nothing thievish about that and... Nobody should be able to stop you from doing it. And, mm -hmm. you know, like fake Drake is somewhere in between, which mm -hmm. is why it's like everybody's so fascinated by this story. Like, and we can get into the voice cloning, which and, is like a whole other and thing. If, and if I, was, if, if I was the marketing department at his label and was behind all that, I would be feel like I was the genius of 2023 marketing, right? I think it's so, the song of the year. Without question, it's right? So and he bad. should embrace it, lean into it, and play that shit like live at concerts. How could it not be solved with the same way I'll Be Missing You that samples Sting's Every Breath You Take? They released that, did not get Sting's permission. But eventually, they have to pay $2,000 a day for life. And you look at the song credits, and Sting is a songwriter on it now. So well, why... You just it, give Drake and the weekend songwriting. So that's that's do and then ask for permission after strategy. That's actually not entirely. I have to correct the record here. Okay. Okay. 
and and then we'll talk about why it doesn't actually apply. But just for the record, um, Diddy did get uh, permission from Sting to use the composition, to to sample the composition. Uh, what he didn't get was permission to use the master recording uh, in the sample itself. And that's what he got sued for. And the, the huge irony of this is that the only thing that he used from the master recording was uh, Stuart Copeland's guitar line, which Sting didn't write, but Sting owned because he owned 100% of the masters for the police. So Sting ended up owning 100% of the Diddy song because Diddy used a song, uh, a riff written by Stuart Copeland that Stuart Copeland never had a piece of. That's insane. That's, you know, what a what a business. What a business it is. So that's, so look, we're, we're you, you bring up some interesting points and to simplify some of it's like, all right, well, what are you doing with that song? You made it with AI. You, you, you ran a bunch of stuff in there. Are you just making it for your own pleasure, for your own fun, to share it with your friends? Or are you going to monetize it? And I think that's where the business really gets stepping in. And then there's the other part of the of the music business, which we, uh, you know, in our day day to day stuff, we touch this kind of like, what about just allowing music to end up in more places, right? And there's just more. There's, there's like a tremendous amount of more um, monetization opportunities for music creators that exist it's just the industry has set up so many guardrails that it, it becomes pretty hard to get there so um what i think ai presents to a lot of the creators that need music is an access point to music that's better quality than they could find on you know maybe like the uh, audio jungles of the world where it's like synth pop volume one you know it's instead it's like well this was made and it's mine technically i'm the only one with this version of that synth uh output right so there's something unique to that and, and there's something interesting to that but you know the quality of of the rest of the body of music that that uh that it lives out there is still higher quality and could take that opportunity if commerce just became a little easier. The music business has just made it kind of difficult to do commerce at all levels. Here, here's uh, the thing, and you guys know this, but you, part of the reason you invited me on was so that I would say it. Um, the music industry is dominated by three multinational corporations, right? Um, you know, none of which are really homegrown American companies anymore, right? One of them is owned by a Russian billionaire. One of them is a big Japanese corporation. One of them is a big uh, European corporation. Um, and these corporations use their tremendous cultural power and their power to withhold access to their catalogs to kind of force both law and economics to maintain their... Uh, oligopolistic control over over all commercial exploitation of music. There has never been, and there will never be, a musical technology that is not manageable by those oligopolists in a way that helps them maintain or even grow the power of their oligopoly. So when I'm like thinking through the eyes of like you know 
Michael Nash or you know one of these big decision makers at one of the big majors. Um, and I say, and I've talked about this with folks at the majors, as I'm sure you guys have too on your on your podcast and elsewhere. But you know, I say like, like is AI music a threat or an opportunity? And they're like, hell yeah, it's an opportunity. We don't have to pay human beings. Like we can sell the same song into like the same soundtrack, into the same playlist, into whatever, and we can reap the rewards from it. And we don't have to like deal with like messy battles over are we paying 6% or 7% effective royalties, uh, right? We don't have to have people slagging us in the press about how we're slaveholders. We can just kind of press a button and make the music. And, and to the extent that we can game the legal system so that, uh, so that copyright does control whether uh, works can be used in a machine learning set, then they can have the exclusive right to generate new music based on the music that they've already got in their IP portfolios, um, which is kind of like Both the you master know. and the publishing. They yeah. can train a machine with those owned composition. Yeah. So I think, and what's know, interesting I think that's the is that here's an and here's the even like deeper that they could build tools that the next generation of you know I think like AI is going to re really resolve down in a copilot products right yeah totally so it'll agree. be it'll be like more a puppeteering like the you know the hard part of making a song is like editing out the drums and getting that shit right like okay like if you could just focus on the fun part of it like which is like the coming up with of the stuff right. so but if you're if you own all of that content you have all that you train all those models then you could say well why don't you make it on this and then they could basically be part totally. of of every song that yeah. ever made. You don't so, even need like Swedish like super producers. You could just yeah, yeah. like there's well, just an endless Mark supply Max of Martin. hot 20 year olds who are willing to like sing and dance over like an AI generated track. Like, Always. You know, yeah, and Ellie. who's not going to want to watch that? Mm -hmm. You know? So, like, all right, let's take this in a couple thought thought directions. Um, okay, there was a you know how like uh, there's a book I read called it's a really interesting book if you haven't read it before it's called The Fish That Ate the Whale. You ever heard of it? Nope. Great book. But nothing to do with music. It's about this guy who in in New York City who was a he basically was like a banana importer, right? Mm -hmm. He was he he imported bananas and there used to be a banana up until like something like the 80s early 90s called the the Big Mike. And yep. it was a it was a, it was the one we grew up on. And then there was a because they had basically cloned it so many times, it became um it, you know, then it, it just became uh, uh subject to like whatever ended up killing off the whole strain, right? Right. Like there's, the rot. It, was, it was it was a uh rot. It, it was homogeny, uh, that's fine. So it was basically taking and you duplicate, duplicate into a place where it's no longer usable. Is that what's going to happen to art? Is what I'm saying long-winded no. way? Like, I'm not flexing. I read a no. book. So I, we, I are, we are in no but. danger of a monoculture because art is something that happens between human beings. And there's like 8 billion of us running around doing crazy shit, like 24-7, 365. So I don't worry about that at all. I think that, you know, um, the commercially controlled uh, media sphere has become more and more and more monocultural over the past 60 years. And I think AI is uh, going to accelerate that. But there's 
A, there's a lot of diminishing returns where after a while, like, I mean, nobody wants to see another Marvel movie, right? Because they're all the same fucking movie. Like, people were on the train for a while, but but after Endgame, like, what else is there to do, right? So you can only squeeze so much, you know, uh, blood juice. from the stone, yeah. right? So much juice from the berry. But for another thing, like, you know, do you guys have kids? I've got two teenagers. And like, they do, they love to do all kinds of like weird shit you know, like they're great musicians in their own right. And they, they play guitar and piano and drums and bagpipes and stuff like that. But they also like to mess around with technology and goof around with their friends. And that's like some of the most interesting music I hear is like the crazy stuff that they come up with. Right. So I don't think like I think not until the human species has run its course is art in danger of becoming monocultural. Like I, I think Every new human being is a fresh start for music and and for for creative expression. I agree, and and look, a, a new generation that's going to grow up on a new tool set. I, all right, like that's just what they've got. And I mean, three year old niece picks up a phone and can use it instantly, right? Just works. Oh yeah, I'm taking pictures. <laughs> Getting these yeah, I can pictures of. I'll date myself here, and I remember. Like when the synthesizer started to become like a household thing, you know, uh, late 70s, early 80s, you just started to hear it for a second. It was nowhere. You had Boston, yes, and just the rock bands of the 70s. Then out of nowhere, boom, it was just this synthesizer revolution, even used today still. That's what. You know, to your point, Aram, when something new is introduced, it can foster art in different ways. And maybe it could catapult a movement. And maybe it can. I know a lot of instruments that came out and a lot of digital plugins within Pro Tools like producer tricks that just, I thought, were freaking awesome. They just never took off. Yeah. It just didn't have the effect that the synthesizer had in the 70s to now. Um to, yeah, to your point, my son's eight, my daughter's three, so she's a little young, but my son plays this video game, this Lego video game now, and I got him on a Nintendo Switch. He walks around the house singing that melody all day long to the point where I was just like, that's a really, that's a really cool song, dude. What is that? Wow. And he's like, it's from, my, it's from the game, level two, and you go into the barracks. So, oh, oh, yeah. Undertale has been like massive for you know kids' musical culture. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so like, I mean... So when my daughter was three, you remember there used to be this app on iOS called Talking Tom. It was like an animated cat who, like, you'd say something to it, and then it, it would say it back to you, but in an altered kind of cat voice. Mm. So she figured out, like, when she was, like, your daughter's age, like, she would take, like, all the phones in the house and put Talking Tom on all of them. And then she would say something to one of them, and she would listen as like the sample got bounced around from phone to phone to phone and more and more distorted and like created basically like logic gates. Yeah. And like, she was three, you know? And it, I'm not saying like my daughter's a genius. She's pretty smart. That's genius. <laughs> but like, like kids will like, it would, it would never have occurred to me to do that with the technology because like I'm old and my brain is fixed in place. Yeah. But like kids are going to fuck with this stuff and it's going to be beautiful. And it's going to make cool shit. I totally agree. It's a, it's a really interesting space, and I know we didn't get it. I need to spend some time thinking about Web three and more music would end up there. 
Um, and you know, we got just a little bit to touch on it, but it sounds like we're gonna have to take two here. I have to have a part and, and go and go web three because I I think web like the so tell me your thoughts about what do you think that web three do you think it's got when first of all when is web three going to be a thing and um what are the benefits of it so far as you see it you know it's really hard to separate the technology out from the kind of grifter economics that have emerged around it like obviously like most nfts were like pump and dump schemes at this point and there are so many orders of magnitude kind of uh, abstracted from the musicking that they represent that uh, I think a lot of musicians like other than hoping for like to get rich quick didn't really see a lot of value in it uh, but all that being said I don't think web 3 is um, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily a pump and dump pyramid scheme technology I think that the capacity to create like I was saying before logic gates smart contracts you know, flows of inputs and outputs and to have that be modular and to use the blockchain to kind of create less, like less frictive flows of information than uh, we have through traditional um, industrial apparatuses, I think is very exciting. And that can totally create the opportunity for new forms of collaboration, new forms of uh, monetization, um, new forms of social organization. I haven't seen that happen yet. I mean, like the closest thing I've seen is DAOs, but the problem with DAOs is that like, it's all like, you know, Hodorowsky's Dune, you know, like a bunch of idiots thinking that because they buy a book, they suddenly own the, the rights to make a, a film out of you know, the intellectual property embodied in that book, which was like a thousand percent wrong, but like millions of dollars went into that like crazy scheme. So um, I would very much like to see, for instance, a, you know, like you think about like a, like a minimalist composer like Terry Riley, who back in the 1960s was playing with these modular forms of composition where you could have like, you know, 57 pieces that could all fit together in different ways and you decide in real time how those pieces are going to fit together. I could certainly see like Web3 used to create modular modes of collaboration. Um, and that could lead to modular modes of ownership, which can lead to modular modes of uh, monetization. Um, do, you, do you need, yeah. like here's, so and that that's super interesting ideas and I I, I buy that. But do we need, I guess a bigger question that comes up a lot, and I'm just speaking for it for the sake of conversation, is do we need blockchain to accomplish that? No. I think, you know, I've, I've for years I've called blockchain internet cancer um, because it, it creates a set of economic um, incentives for people to reproduce it. And then it just burns down the fucking ice caps um, in order to, you know, create wealth without any productivity, right? Like yeah. nothing gets produced, but like a handful of people get everybody else's money. And then like we're in economic and ecological crisis. Um, I have I, I have yet to see anybody address just the ecological challenges of blockchain, which is like, you make one transaction and every single ledger in the world has to update and burn like 
electricity to make that happen. Like oh, that's, okay. that's that's idiotic, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I, I I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but you know, I've seen some accounts that like Bitcoin alone, like you know, uses as much electricity as all the private homes on the planet, right? Again, that's spurious. Don't take my word for it, but look it up. There are analyses out there that are very rigorous and come to conclusions along those lines. But do you um, think it's an yeah. early stage? You know, I mean, music used to be only in waveform, which is 50 gigabytes. Yep. Then you could get it in three. Maybe guess, totally. The technology well, grows and they figure out faster, cheaper, less harsh. 100%. Well, yes. It's like, well, here's the argument, though, right? Like, that... That what you just described, Brian, doesn't affect the planet, right? Or in this one, it is apparently, you know, like that there is an argument to be made that this it's burning so much fuel to run these networks that is a is the juice worth the squeeze type thing. I mean, I think it's pointing towards some more. I think what what it's doing actually, I, what I always connected with is what it was trying to say, like. We have to trust each other in a digital environment, and that is hard to manage. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that you could have a trustless environment? And that was the solution was to connect computers together. So that was initially why, you know, like those are one that was one of the early maxims, right? Like this is trustless. It's it you don't have to trust it. It just is. So I still don't. I still think that's an like a, a novel a novel uh, concept to keep going after. You know, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I I kind of like I think in a sample based productive environment, you know, like the idea of being able to trace the lifespan of a sample through its kind of cultural ideations, like you know, musician X puts out this this track, musician Y samples it. Musician Z samples the sample and so on and so forth. You know, musician ZA puts it into a, a, a training set for an ML, and then musician ZB uses the ML to come out with something. Like that, I love the idea because I study this stuff, I guess, and I, you know, it's like a fantasy to have that kind of uh, insight into these flows. I love the idea of the kind of trackability and accountability and verifiability of, for lack of a better term, like musical memes. Um, I think that if it weren't for the ecological and the criminal kind of externalities, that could be built into an interesting set of exploratory business models where, you know, like, oh, well, musician X who created this sample is responsible for exactly 11.1% of the result that created this dollar, so they're owed 11.1 cents. that's interesting to me. But again, to go back to what we were talking about before, the three majors have such a, like a chokehold on like any real money being made in this business that like what we're really talking about is is spending a lot of time and energy like fighting over like micro pennies and like I, like you can't there's not enough economic activity generated by musical exchange to make every single deserving musician wealthy. Or even to give each of okay. us like minimum wage. So let me throw something back at that at that point. And I don't disagree with you, but you know, to be optimistic, I do believe that there is far more opportunity out there for music than we currently 
than than the music industry is able to tap into. You mean right? economic opportunity? Possibility, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so like, so, give me an example. Like, where do you see an untapped market? Okay, gaming, games, like the fact that you can't buy a song along with your skin or with you know a hat or bands can't release music into games like that's a big opportunity right there absolutely i think it's a tremendous opportunity but and we we work on that problem but at the same time you know there's nobody's built the pipes yet and it's if you were to rely on the majors to make that opportunity happen then it's it's never make yeah so but you know, like the majors are claiming, or the people that I, that we've talked with, they, they say that the majors are losing twelve percent market share year over year to indies and different different approaches to the industry. inshallah, inshallah. Well, let me ask you this question: Like, I'm okay. I'm a I'm a fifteen year old kid. I buy. Uh, I I get my parents to spend seventy bucks on the latest PS five game. Um, I want to download a DLC. That's another twenty bucks. Like, you know, they've already kind of like begun to crack down on loot crates, which is great. But I guess my question to you is, is that, are those songs that they're going to download with the skins, is that an extra $10 of retail activity? Or is it a licensing opportunity or marketing and advertising? Like who's pay, who's underwriting that? And given the fact that like consumer wallets don't expand really. I mean, they expand and contract in small ways over time, but they stay pretty consistent. Like, like, what is that ten? What's not going to get spent for that extra ten dollars that that is going to put that that downloadable song into the game for the kid? I mean, that's share a wallet question, but they it always moves to what's more interesting, right? So if it's not that interesting, they won't buy it. But that's free market capitalism, right? So at the end of the day. 70, I just looked this up because I'm a nerd. I just said the average gamer spends around $76 per month on gaming. So that sounds about right. That's about the share of wallet, right? Let, let's just see how sure. much they're spending on music. Oh, it's got to be I a $10. I already know it's $10. <laughs> you yeah. know, like we already know because that's what they spend for Spotify. Yeah. So it's again, like, is there more? There are more plays there. Are there more? Just like all I'm saying is, I I don't. We don't have the answer for this call. We do for a different call. But what I'm saying is that there are other opportunities. It's just the the, the industry kind of needs to work towards expanding out into those. And then if a metaverse ever gets made, there's another opportunity. Let's sure. say, you know, look the digital landscape it is probably going to expand rapidly, especially with AI and and machine generated like landscapes and then it's just going to it's going to grow and grow and grow so that's i think where where the 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 ball's moving and then it's just up to us in the industry and the people that are building and the musicians to all work towards that and whether ai does it or not but i think like back to the web3 stuff is it to be able to track all that or to be able to like simplify the rights and be be able to like Make your music available for games or not for games if it has a cigarette inside of it. Make it available yep. for games without that. All of that um, opposability and like, like sort of like computer generated, this is good for this and that and takes people out of the equation. 
Yep. Now, what used to take six months in a lawyer is six minutes in a credit card is a pretty good way to go, right? When yeah, I hear what you're saying. Opportunity. I definitely think that there's the possibility to use Web3 or an analogous technology to create kind of clearing houses for musical commodities. I also think, I mean, I think AI is has the capacity to create a whole new generation of playable music games, you know, like we saw with Rock Band and Guitar Hero uh, and DJ Hero back in the, the late aughts. Um, you know, I think now that, you know, with with voice cloning and with machine learning and, and AI-generated sound-alikes, like, I could easily imagine a whole new um, bunch of games taking off. But to your to your other point, like, you know, consumer wallet share is dedicated to what's interesting and what's interesting changes very rapidly. Like, you know, I think, what did we have, five years of rock bands? You know, I, I think at best we'd have five years of, like, AI games that consumers were willing to pay for, and then they'd be like, okay, I get it, I've moved on. It, well, it, it, yeah, it, but again, there's music games, and then there's just games. Sure. And just games is a is the other market. I think gamers like games. Like if you're doing a game that does a thing, it has a life cycle. Sometimes that IP can grow, you know, be God of War. Sure. To just keep they keep growing that IP, but the next game's got to be fun. And to your interesting, it's bringing that your music that you love to all the game. I like my phone and my earbuds because if I want to go walking through my neighborhood, walk down to the beach, or go on a roller coaster. I can, in my physical life, I can take my music with me and play it based on my surroundings, what I'm in the mood for. If I'm playing a, you know, an RPG game or a first person shooter game, I want to be able to take my music that, you know, I already know that 42% of people that play games turn off the soundtrack and 29% of those are Gen Zers. The new generation is turning off the music and piping in something that they want to hear. But they lose that kind of, you know, adaptivity. Modularity. Yeah, of the, of the game. Yeah. There's a, a big opportunity in being able to turn off that bad repetitive music that my son sings all the time and yep. put in my, you know, uh, Barry Gibb, uh, Barry Gibb soundtrack, you know. Is, so, that, is that your thing? Are you a Barry Gibb man? I think he's a great songwriter. <laughs> I, I'm all not right. going to argue. So, look, uh, maybe this is a good place to stop because I think we can come back and dig into some other stuff. We uh, This has been a great chat. Yeah, for sure. Love the way you think about this stuff. Um, Yeah, I mean, we'll see. So many many interesting things happening right now. Yeah, I'm glad you stopped me because I was about to drop a really evil idea on you guys, but, but... Oh well, let's leave that as the as the, the walk away track. Let's do that. It's the walk off track. Oh, you want to hear my walk off evil? My my yeah. super villainous. Uh, okay, so I went to uh, my middle schooler's uh, production of um, the Wizard of Oz last week, and you know it was exactly the same as every other middle school production of Wizard of Oz over the last eighty five years, except there were no students playing in the pit. There were no student musicians at all, other than the singers on the stage. The tracks were all basically karaoke tracks. And clearly, whoever had licensed the compositions had done the tracks as an add-on and had done a digital projection 
set as an add-on to the add-on. So like, you know, there's like a, there's an Oklahoma set and there's a yellow brick road set and there's all this, you know, there's like a haunted forest set or whatever. And like, I, I found that really interesting because I'd never seen that before, right? I'd never seen like, like it was very clear that the whole play was organized to that projected screen and that they must have paid extra for it. Heck yeah. So I think, you know, and this is me, this is the, the super villainist kind of observation. I think if the size of the pie for the music industry is going to grow, it's not going to grow by like getting a gamer to like forfeit $10 of a game for $10 of music or whatever. It's going to grow by using technology as a wedge to get the music industry into those organic spaces that historically have not been commercialized. Right? Like it used to be, you know, the, the seventh grader was playing saxophone. Now it's a karaoke track. It used to be the seventh grader was painting a barn for the set. Now it's a projection track. Right? Um, you know, you could easily imagine like other musical organic spaces like places of worship getting more and more suffused with like AI assisted in a box. You know, like imagine like you had an AI that was able to play like a hallelujah flourish on an organ. Uh, in response in real time to what a preacher was saying, even if he or she was improvising, right? Fascinating. Like, it's it's terrible. I like well, I hate the fact that I'm even thinking this. When you brought up um, Wizard of Oz and you said there was no musicians, I for a second I thought you said that they that this production had Dark Side of the Moon playing instead of the regular. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's been great chatting with you, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. We'll have to do this again. And uh, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a great, where, my where, pleasure. Where can they find you? Oh, uh, you can find all things about me at sinreich.com, S-I-N-N-R-E-I-C-H.com. Uh, I have a band called Dania and Aram that had a great album out last year, and I've got a new book coming out uh, in a few months called The Secret Life of Data. Oh, cool. Hey. Yeah, well, ping us when that book's out. We'll have to bring you on and chat about it. Can't wait. I'd love to. Absolutely. Cool. Aaron, uh, it was ours. Thanks, man. Great to meet you. Great chat. Likewise. Talk to Thanks. you soon.